Scripture reading for this morning is from Acts chapter 10, verses 34 through 36. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. We've been talking about, let me get out my title here, the authority of Scripture and the demands of moral agency. Uh, Last week I spent some time making fun of that title, so I won't this week. I just can't come up with anything better. What we're basically talking about is how we understand the Scriptures to relate to our lives in light of the fact that discipleship sometimes demands that we make moral assessments or choices that we act as thinking agents in areas sometimes that aren't covered in Scripture or sometimes take an ethic in Scripture and move beyond it or would seem to. How do we engage that part of the demand of life and our our minds against the desire and the sort of teaching that we've all had that scripture is authoritative and sacred in such a way that we dare not bucket, but that instead we uh, keep, keep to it rather rigidly. So that's the essence in a, in a nutshell. Two weeks ago, we set the stage. We talked about the text itself and some of our more uh, traditional Bible study-oriented type understandings of how the text fits into our lives And uh, some of the scriptures we dealt with were 1 Timothy 4, devote yourself to the reading of scripture, do not neglect your gift which was given you through a prophetic message. Romans 15, everything written that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of scriptures we might have hope. 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And many other texts we took time to look at. So we laid a foundation I trust we all understand is profound respect for, appreciation for the scriptures and the role that they play in our lives. It was very careful, I think at that time, to emphasize how it's impossible to work deeply into something or through something or even past something without digging into the thing itself first. So the fundamental prerequisite for us in this act of discipleship, moving toward moral agency, is knowing the scriptures and knowing them well. Jesus knew them very, very well. And it enabled him to speak with authority when he went to the point of exercising moral agency. We'll see some of that today. Very, very clear, very powerful. He knew his scriptures, and we must too. So that's the foundation. Uh, So in other words, I I haven't set the stage to throw out anything. I've simply said we must know and understand these these things we hold sacred and dear and precious and true. Last week, we went a slightly different direction. I'm really surprised and grateful that you're all here. I made several serious blunders in 
telling a story off the top of my head. First of all, we talked about Numbers 30, verse 2, how it says, if you make an oath before the Lord, you must fulfill all of the terms of the oath. In other words, do as you say in the oath. And then I went to uh, Judges 11 and told the story of Jephthah, only instead of the Ammonites, I said the Moabites, and instead of 60 days to mourn her virginity, I said 30 days, and so I thank you for coming and for continuing to trust me uh, to break the bread here. I will try to uh, get those details straight next time. Anyway, Jephthah, just to recap last week, is this guy who is the product of a Jewish father and a prostitute mother. He lives in a scrappy, outcast part of town. He is a misfit and a tough one at that. And Israel gets in trouble. The, the uh, leaders of uh, the area come to him and say, we want you to lead us in battle against the Ammonites and we'll make you our ruler. And he can't believe what he's hearing. So ironically, he has them make an oath that in fact they will fulfill their word. And they do. They swear before God that they will make him their leader if he is victorious over the Ammonites. So he gathers the troops, marches through, is victorious. God delivers them into his hand, and he is made ruler and rules for six years. Now, in the course of getting ready to march and do this, he promises God that he will offer as a burnt offering, verse 31, anything, the first thing that comes out of his, his house, which ends up being his daughter. Now, his joy at victory becomes agony, and he uh, gives her what she requests, two months, uh, to mourn her virginity. Now, that's a simplicity. You get kind of a picture there with that word in English, but really what we're talking about is mourning the fact that she doesn't go on as his only child to marry, to produce heirs, to have sons, to continue a line to live the life that she has to the fullest. She's a young woman is the emphasis there. And this is the end of her road. And she faces it gracefully and bravely. I want to thank you. I'm not going to name names, but several of you have responded to the last couple of sermons. At the end of the first, I made the statement that the Bible didn't uh, proscribe slavery. And some of you wrote me a text that said, well, I think this text works, and it was love your neighbor as yourself. And so you're thinking, you're addressing some of these things, and while I would say that text is not a specific proscription, it, 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 taken in its larger context, would certainly apply. And then last uh, week I was talking about some things that others of you responded to. Uh, Some of you emailed me, some of you sent me... uh, a uh, document even calling me on the carpet on a couple of things where you think I haven't, uh, haven't probably paid attention to the, the depth possible in a particular passage as well as I might. So good for you. Uh, I thank you for that. Now today, I want you to turn to Matthew 5. Matthew 5 is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Beatitudes and so forth. And Jesus is going to go through a series of correctives. Now, there are two ways to view these correctives. The first, and I think most of us would probably want to sit here because it's the most comfortable. The first corrective is that he's not changing anything in the law at all. He's not, he's already confirmed that the law is valid and must be fulfilled. 
So in order to keep that notion consistent, we would say he's not changing the law at all. He's simply deepening and broadening a read of the law. And that's a, a very viable sort of way to look at this passage. Another way to look at it is it's a corrective of a, a grander scale. Not only is he deepening, widening the interpretation of the passage, but he's actually commanding us to go in a new direction based on the way the Old Testament texts which would have been his Bible, read at the time. So let's take a minute and look at some of these. Matthew 5.22. I'm actually, believe it or not, going to use the King James today. In 5.20, well, I'm actually uh, going to go back and forth. 5.21 is where I want to start because that's the uh, you have heard it said part. And here's what it says. You have heard it said do not commit murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment, verse 22. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, or fool, will be in danger of the council. But whoever shall say, thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Okay, familiar with that passage? And there's an expansion there. But in 521, the reference is to Exodus 20.13, the commandment itself. This is one of the ten. Thou shalt not commit murder. And Jesus says, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit murder, but I want to expand that for you. When you hate your brother or angry without cause, you, you commit violence. You commit murder of sorts. So this one would be a clear expansion, not a change. He's not taking away the command to commit murder. He's simply expanding our understanding of how we might read that and see that. In 527, Jesus says, You have heard it, heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. Again, one of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then he goes on to expand that. So he takes the commandment and shifts our read of it again. But then when we get to Matthew 5.31, it goes a little differently. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. That particular one is found in Deuteronomy 24.1. It's not part of the 10 in this case, but he says this, I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife saving for the cause of fornication causes her to commit adultery, and whoever shall marry her that is divorced also commits adultery. So he deepens and widens, and this time shifts. There was no minimum factor or cause for divorce. Divorce was simply a matter of choice. And Jesus deepens it and broadens it, and I would argue even changes it. He raises a standard that says, yes, you still issue a certificate of divorce, but this time... There must be profound brokenness, profound reason for this split. Matthew 5, 33. 
This is a, a germane one. Again, you have heard it said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths that you have made to the Lord. Guess where that one's found? Numbers 30, verse 2. Yes, our text last week or one of them. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. That's really not true anymore. Um, I should know. Um, Simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Now this is a total abrogation. This is a complete redirect. This is a you have heard it said, but this is the way it needs to be. Jesus does a full shift on this one. And it's a fascinating thing that he's done. 538, you have heard it said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Wow. I could take a whole sermon unpacking that one. The passage there is referent to Exodus 21 as well as Leviticus 24.20. Do not resist evil. Interesting. If everybody practiced eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, fracture for a fracture, bruise for a bruise, it would be a pretty beat up world. And Jesus again shifts us from the practice of lex talionis, that is to say, the practice of revenge, to the practice of a more pacifistic and cooperative response. Win them with love, for love is greater than hate. Again, a real shift. And he concludes this, which he's building up to in 43. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He blesses and loves everyone. Interesting shift, again, from the understanding that people lived with. They had a very clear sense of who was in and who was out, who the friend was and who the enemy was, who the neighbor was and who the stranger was. And the social forces and dynamics were built to keep fences around the sa- and safety around those on the inside and everyone else out. And if you think for just a few minutes, I think you can readily identify within our own culture and our own thinking and our own politic and our own body the same sorts of dynamics. There are those acceptable and those in and those not acceptable and those out. And there are fences built to protect and divide and keep Jesus challenges this and he pays a price in doing so. And those who challenge it today pay a price as well. 
but it is an act of moral agency. All of these, you have heard it said, but I say to you, are acts of moral agency. How is it that we're to be like Jesus? Not just obedient, not just suffering servants, not just those who have a sense of good news, not just those who are inheritors of the old boundaries and keepers of them, but those who, like Jesus, know the truth in such a way that it sets not only them free, but everyone free around them. Because that is the gospel. It's the gospel of good news that brings freedom to each of us. From this passage, we can conclude a lot of things. We can see that moral agency exists in Christ's life. We can see that he wasn't afraid to practice it. We can see that he's able to move through these scriptures and either expand them to their deepest meaning or in some cases point to the limitations and give a redirect based in a different kind of kingdom and a new kind of love. Turn with me to Acts 10. In just a few minutes that we have left, I want to tell you a story which I'll probably get the details wrong again and that's the way it goes. And uh, read it for yourself. Know where I get the details wrong. That's important. And uh, God bless you as you do. The first nine chapters of Acts, nine, are about the Jerusalem church. And if they're not about the Jerusalem church, the only expansion is to cities outside of Jerusalem, all within a 30-mile radius of Jerusalem. We're talking north a little bit and south as far as Joppa. The people being spoken of are already Christians in most cases. The first nine chapters of Acts don't deal with anything missional at all. And in Acts, starting in chapter 10, there is a shift in perspective, a paradigm shift that is so profound it changes the shape of Christianity in the first century and thereafter forever. And it makes it possible for those of us who are not Jews to be understood, to be eligible for salvation, to be able to receive the Spirit, to be able to confess and repent of our sins and to be forgiven and receive the grace of Christ. And this shift is a profound one because it goes to the deepest levels in terms of the cultural fabric of the day an understanding of the call of Scripture of the day and all of the exclusivity that goes with it. You see, if you think about it, what did people in the early church have to read? It wasn't Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It wasn't Acts, hello. It certainly wasn't any of the Pauline letters or Revelation. What they had to read in the day was the Pentateuch, 
the law, basically, the Torah. They had the prophets. They read a lot of Isaiah. They had the minor prophets. What little we've gathered from archaeology and Qumran and so forth, there are texts that they used that we don't use, some of them. And there are texts that they used that we're very familiar with. But they had their collection of sacred writings. And there were little pinpricks throughout of hope for an expanded vision of salvation for humanity. Built within the text, by inspiration I have to believe, were little moments where one could get a vision if one were so open and inclined. The salvation of Rahab is one of those stories in the Old Testament. A little beacon of hope for humanity there beyond Judaism. But at the time of the New Testament church, the mission of Christ, though he's dealt with Samaritans, though he has dealt with Romans, though he's dealt with Roman soldiers, though Christ has dealt with all kinds of non-Jewish people and spoken of them in positive and faithful terms, often giving the negative comparison to the Pharisees or the religious elite of the day, even though Christ himself has been about that, the Jerusalem church and the church as a whole is still a Jewish project. Enter Cornelius. Cornelius, a popular name for about 100 years at that time. Good family. This is a nobleman. Somewhat educated, well-trained, respectful. An ambassador for the Romans as well as a leader of men. He's of the Italian regiment, which would have been about 6,000 soldiers. And while centurion is understood to mean leader of a hundred, very often centurions were responsible for as many as a thousand men. This is somebody who knows his business, and he's not just a soldier. He's a politician. He is in an area where he must occupy a foreign territory and he has to deal with insurgencies. He has to deal with radicals and he has to put them down. But at the same time, he must do so in such a way so as not to incite the people and not to create more trouble for Rome. He is a respectful pluralist, which means that being aware of the Roman pantheon of gods and the expectations of pagan religion, he also familiarizes himself with Jewish religion and when in Palestine does as the Jews do. He prays at the time the Jewish people pray. He does not speak of a plurality of gods but gives homage to the one true God. He and his family appear to have been influenced and shaped by their new surroundings. He is a God-fearing man, as it's described, but he is an uncircumcised Italian Cretan, if you will. Somebody who has no place in God's plan of salvation somebody who certainly has no place at a Jewish table. He's an occupier. He's a threat. He's an outsider. 
and an angel of the Lord comes to him. And his reaction is similar to that of many who've seen angels. He's initially speechless and a bit terrified. And he says, uh, what do you want, Lord? The message is given to Cornelius. Send for Peter, the apostle. He's staying at the house of Simon the Tanner in Joppa by the sea. Oh, Roman, Rome was like America. Good roads, great transportation, you know, plenty of ways to get. He just dispatches a horse and rider and sends him down, and it's done. It's a fait accompli. I mean, it's done. He's got it wired. The address is known. I mean, but they tax these people. They know where Simon the Tanner lives. Runner shows up, and Peter is there. And in the meantime, Peter is starving, really hungry. It's just before lunch. Have you ever been really hungry just before lunch? Are you feeling that way now? (laughs) If you leave now before the sermon's over and eat, you will get indigestion. (laughs) I don't know. It was worth a try. You've read the vision. Sheet is handed down with snakes and alligators and every creepy crawly kind of thing and all the things that are unclean as well as four-legged beasts and so forth. And Peter's starving and a voice says, Kill and eat, Peter. What are you talking about? I'm a good Jew. I would no more eat this than garbage. I'm paraphrasing. Kill and eat, Peter. Who are you to declare unclean what I have declared clean? Now, there are lots of Christians who say, Ah, see, this means I can eat whatever I want. Uh, You're going to have to go to a different passage to prove that. This isn't the one. Because this passage interprets itself and goes on later to say, Peter comes to the realization that God is declaring that nobody is unclean, that he is declared clean. And right about then, guess who shows up? The runner, the horseman, whatever, from Cornelius. And Peter brings these servants of Cornelius into his house and and extends to them hospitality. They spend the night, and the next day he goes up to be with Cornelius. And guess what happens to him from the Jewish brothers? He is called on the carpet. We hear that you ate with Gentiles. What have you to say for yourself? Not a very open society. Meanwhile, at Cornelius' house, They've shared, they've worshipped. Peter has explained the gospel to them and the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they speak in tongues and worship God. So Peter has that to reply. He says, they've received the Holy Spirit and the brothers are silent. Well, it looks as if if they've received the Spirit that God is in fact for them. And this ends the issue. 
Now, I would like to think that this enormous shift in thinking could have taken place without an angel involved, without a vision involved, and so forth. But it didn't. This enormous shift in thinking was helped by these extraordinary factors. But a paradigm shift occurred that began the Gentile mission and allowed Christianity to become not a Jewish religion, but a world religion and enfolds you and I. And I would like to suggest this morning as my parting shot that there are paradigm shifts yet to be made in Christendom. And it will not, hopefully, require an angel visit and a vision and a declaration of the General Conference. It will, I hope, be because men and women, boys and girls everywhere, know the Scriptures and have developed a sense of the Holy Spirit's presence and lead in such a way that the current limitations and boundaries we hold so dear get pushed. And the circle of God's saving love is drawn ever wider and more inclusively in this broken, damaged, divided, hateful, and warring world.